apologize in advance. If this sermon seems bumpy in any way, I'm, I apologize. Uh, Pastor Brian did tell me that they were planning on being gone this weekend, but they weren't for sure. And he just said, hey, have a topic in mind and kind of have it locked and loaded. Um, well, I had a topic, and it's a very big topic. Um, but I didn't get until yesterday to prepare this. So thank God we don't rely on our flesh, but instead on him. Amen. You'll see... Um, if you've heard me preach before, you know I like to read the passage that we're going to go over and then pray over it. So if you see today, the, the title is Sola Scriptura, and the passage would be Genesis 1, 1 through Revelation 22, 21. How many of you caught that when you first read that? How many of you didn't catch it until just now? How many of you have no clue what I'm talking about? <laughs> The reason why that is, is it's, it's lighthearted, but if we're going to talk about God's word, then we have to talk about all of his word. Yes? So I'm just going to go ahead and, and pray over it, and um, we'll get started. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you so much for giving us another day. Lord God, just another time to get together with our brothers and sisters and fellowship and worship and, and just elevate you. Lord God, we, we thank you so much for that. Father God, we, we ask that today's message is is your message, Lord God, that it's not dependent on, on our ability, Lord God, that it's completely of you. Father, I do ask for your gift of wisdom, of speaking and teaching, Lord God. This is a topic that we definitely, definitely need clarity on, Lord God. And so we just, we come to you for that because we, we cannot get that anywhere else. Lord God, I pray that your, your hand is on this message and that you prepare our hearts in our ears and our minds, to receive your word. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, with this topic, uh, it's, this is huge. And I struggled, really, to, to find a starting point. Because where do you start when you say, we're going to talk about God's word as a whole? Well, the first thing I, I decided to do is I sort of want to give a, a disclaimer. Um, I am in no way responsible for how you feel about today's message. You see, I think today we're going to see some Christians will get this message, but the thing is, is only Christians will get this message. What is sola scriptura? It's Latin for scripture alone. Scripture is sufficient. Now, how can we make such a statement? Because it's God's word. That's the only way we can say that. Scripture alone because it is God's word. That's the assurity we have in his word. Now, the big question, and I think this is kind of the place I wanted to start, was how do we know this is God's word? Because if you search that on the internet, you're going to find hours and hours and hours of material, things being debated. How do we know? Can we know? Can we prove that this is God's word? And so I feel, I hope some of you came today with that question on your heart going, Man, how can we know this is God's word? And how can we prove that this is God's word? When I'm talking to a friend or a relative and they deny this, what can we do to convince them this is God's word? And I'm going to give you the answer. How can we convince the non-believer? What can you do? Here's the answer. You can't do it. John 10, 25 through 27, Jesus answered them, I told you, you believe me not that the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. People are not going to hear his voice because they are not his sheep. Christians will, will wrestle with this. We think that we have some part in it, that we can give them enough evidence and let them decide. There is no way around this. You are of his sheep or you're not. And I'm also going to tell you guys, if you have a, uh, a conviction with, it, with any of this, if you wrestle with this, I am your brother. If we have a disagreement on some perspective on, on God's word, find me out here after the service, and I would love to talk to you. But if you are not of his sheep, you do not hear his voice. And just because someone doesn't hear their voice today doesn't mean we know that they're not his sheep. That same person can come back tomorrow and call on Christ. Amen? As I said earlier, not all Christians will understand today's message, but only Christians will understand today's message. Now, here's my point. 
God reveals certain things to whomever he chooses. Let me ask you something. How do we know anything at all? Any, any claim. Take, take any truth claim. How do we know it? One of my favorite examples to use is the number two. Two-ness, the philosophy of two. How do we know what two is? Like if there's two rocks, how do we know what that is? And you might say, well, I count it. One, two, right? It's a number. I count in my head. Well, before your head existed, did the number two exist? I know this is really, this is lame, but I love this example. Yes, right? The number two existed before you existed. So it is obviously not dependent on our logic and reasoning. God determined what two is, and he could have chosen any other word. It could have been blorp. Blorp could represent two, right? But it's still an expression of a truth. My point is, is God is the object of all truth. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Nothing, nothing can be known outside of God. Anything we know must be revealed from God. And I think we forget that. See, I think we like to boast in our knowledge, in our accomplishments, right? Oh, I, I came to this conclusion, or, or scientists discovered this. We're so smart. Any knowledge, anything that's true, comes from God, but we boast in that. An example I like to think of is, it's like a pig eating his slop. And he looks up and he says, well, it's pretty cool to have a talking pig, but he looks up and he says, I eat this slop because I choose to. Well, the problem with that is, who put that slop in front of you? Pig. And that's my point. Yes, we can come to, to knowledge and, and truths, but all of that preexisted before us. God is the object of any truth. <clears throat> and if we know anything at all, it is because God has chosen to let us know. This is what we have with his written word. And if you are his sheep, then you hear his word. And it is because he has revealed it to be so. We cannot come to a place where we reason to this being his word. You might wrestle with that. You might say, well, but there's people that they hear enough proofs and evidences and they finally conclude, well, this must be God's word. I've seen it happen too. But again, we're placing our knowledge outside of God. God is the one who determined that person would hear that and that he would finally hear his voice. Since we need God to reveal any truth to us, we must realize that we definitely need him to reveal his word to us. Again, we do not go out there and know who the sheep are. So I like to call this sheep food. We go out and we constantly sprinkle this out, praying and hoping that his sheep take the food. We are not the standard bearer or the authority over, over what scripture is. And I urge you to stop treating non-believers as if they are the authority when judging scripture. Meaning nobody, not us or the non-believer, gets to decide if this is God's word. And we need to stop trying to prove that scripture is God's word. That's another thing I would uh, advise against. You see, we go out there and we try to use evidences to try to change the person's mind. And I just said, that's, that's fine. It can happen. God could use evidences to call that person. But my problem is, is when we are giving a, a reasonable defense of our faith, I want to do it in a way that glorifies God. Yes? Here's the, the scenario I like to use. In a courtroom, who do you provide evidence to? The judge. You might have a jury there, but you do not provide the evidence to them. You give it to the judge. And when we go out and somebody says they deny God and his word, and we start giving them evidences, what are we doing? We're putting them in the judge seat, and we're putting God on trial. And I will not do that to the Lord I adore. And the problem with that scenario, too, is with evidences, you can win that case. There's plenty of evidences out there that support scripture, what it is. But the problem is you place that person as the judge, the authority figure. So even if you convince that person, their decision was based on evidence. And the problem with that 
is tomorrow some tra tragedy could happen in their life. They could lose a loved one. And now they're going, I don't like that evidence. So surely God, he can't be real. He wouldn't have let that happen. Do you see the problem when we put someone else as the judge or authority over God's word? And when we let man be the authority over God, then all the evidences in the world won't do a single thing. This is why personally, again, this is a stance I hold, and I encourage you to check it out. It's the presuppositional view. I presuppose that God's word is true and that God exists. I do not waste time doing Bible studies with non-believers. I will not do it. Because this person is already established, they are the authority over God's word. So why would I waste time trying to convince them when something they've already decided in their heart can't be true? I will not do it. However, I will proclaim the truth to them because this is our weapon. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even unto the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thought and intent of the heart. This is our weapon. I'm not going to try to reason with a non-believer and convince them of it and then use it. I'm going to just use scripture. This is our weapon. Another example I like to use is if, fellas, someone breaks into your house in the middle of the night, and you own a gun. I hope you do. And you get out with that gun, and you go to the sound, wherever you think this intruder is, and you pull the gun on him. And you probably say, don't move, or I shoot. I have a gun. And this person turns to you, and he says, well, I don't believe in that gun. I don't believe it's real. Oh, let me just, never mind. No. That is your weapon. Are you kidding me? Uh, look up Vadi Bakum. Um, he's got a great example on this when he's talking about this, the, the word being a sword. Right? If you pulled out on someone and they said, well, I don't believe in your, your sword, you wouldn't put it away. What would you do? <laughs> right? This is, our, this is our weapon. Don't give up your weapon because by doing so, you're, you're trying to... to uh, find neutrality. And I want to tell you right now that the enemy, the God-haters, the non-believers will not give up their weapon. They do not want to find neutrality, and we shouldn't either. Matthew 10, 30, he that is not with me is against me. There is no neutral ground. You are with God or you are against him. Thank God for his word. It is our weapon. It is many things. It makes us wise unto salvation. It reveals God's standard, and it reveals the hearts of man. Sola Scriptura. Scripture is sufficient. Amen? Sufficient for what? That's a good question. Because I think we tend to go, well, it's sufficient for everything. Well, easy. Can I read the Bible and learn how to change a tire on the car. No, that, that, that's an easy one. No. So it is sufficient for, for what? For us to live a life of faith and service. And it also reveals whatever spiritual truth God wants us to know. And who is the authority of all things? So therefore, especially these things, God, right? He's the object of, of all knowledge. And since God has given us his very word, well, the next question is, is how do we interpret it? Good grief, there's, there is endless views on scripture and how to interpret it. So how do we interpret it? If, the, if this is our standard, do we go to man, who obviously doesn't meet that standard, and go, well, man should interpret scripture, right? No. We use scripture to interpret scripture. If this is our standard, our yardstick that we're measuring it, you would use that same standard to measure it. Right? It's interesting that uh, we seem to not, not get that. We, we want to uh, use our, our logic and reasoning, and we think, we think man, I can, I, can, I can understand all of scripture. One of my favorite things, uh, one of my favorite preachers ever said, he I think he's in his 70s now. He said, when I got out of seminary, it took me a year to master the Bible. And then it took me 40 years to realize I was wrong. I like that. 
So we know how to in interpret Scripture now. It is by Scripture. So I sort of wanted to start there with maybe a lighthearted example and application. Now, I'm, I'm trying to remember if I've used this example here um, a couple years ago, but it's still a really good one. Today, what I wanted to do is get an answer on a, a philosophical question that has plagued mankind for thousands of years. I mean, heated debates have been born because of this question, and it's probably split many, many good relationships. And today, I just, if we can put that to rest, we can finally move on. So I think using scripture, we can get an answer to this. What came first, the chicken or the egg? I told you it was lighthearted. But if we look at Genesis 1, 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth the living creatures after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and the beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. What came first? Chicken. The chicken. Now, are we willing to go out and say this to the world? This is an easy example. This is, this is not heavy. But if someone said, man, yeah, we never figured out what came first, chicken or the egg. Would you boldly say, the chicken, we know the chicken came first, which would be really cool because I've never seen anyone give an answer with confidence. And hopefully that person you're talking to would say, well, how do you know that? And you say, Scripture says so. That, I, I imagine that scenario, and that makes me giddy because what if someone got saved because of this stupid chicken and egg scenario? Right? If you point to someone, man, I, we know because Scripture says the chicken. It'd be cool to speak to that person years later. Well, how did you get saved? Chicken. Like, that would be cool to see. So we have an answer to this question. Through God's word, are there implications to just this verse? I think there happens to be. For one, it means chickens didn't evolve. We can get rid of evolution once again. He didn't put down a blob of gooey cells, and then millions of later, years later we see a chicken finally form. He created the beast that crawled on the earth. And, again, this is my view, I will argue that it defends the young earth argument because this was created on the sixth day, which Scripture says was an evening and a morning, and that it was the sixth day, a full 24 hours, not representing millions of years. Again, find me up front if you want to talk about that. Now, we are starting to see that God's word is sure and clear, and we know how to read it. I think the next step is to talk about the individuals who have different views on Scripture. Many views of Scripture are, are developed, and I really... There's probably more than the ones we're going to talk about, but I've, I've, I just wanted to pick basic ones that we can quickly discuss. I think the first one is the obvious one, and it's the non-believer who claims that Scripture is not the God or the Word of God. And we already know that only his sheep will hear his voice, so that doesn't surprise us, a claim like that that they'll make. But Scripture also tells us, 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. They're foolish. And they hate God. So much they will deny his word. And they don't just stop there. They make absolutely ridiculous accusations with no credibility. I'm sure you've heard them. How can you trust scripture when it's just man's writings? When we know it's been rewritten re-edited, revised, retranslated, then revised again, then translated back. And they make these claims with no effort to try to prove it. Which when in fact we know there are many evidences to disprove that. The Dead Sea Scrolls, Pilate Stone, 26,000 artifacts on the New Testament alone, spanning over different time periods, and they're all saying the same thing. My point is, is if scripture was not what it claimed to be, it would be the easiest thing to disprove, and they would have done it already. Another interesting thing, I think, that speaks on the heart of the individual who says this is not God's word, 
Because this same person has no problem clinging to ancient writings. Greek philosophy, how, how old is that? Almost 2,000 years old. And they say you can trust every single word in those writings. Does that, does that not blow your mind? I mean, just digest what I just said. This writing couldn't be accurate because man translates and, and they lie and they make stuff up. But Greek philosophy, you can trust every word that that man wrote over almost 2,000 years ago. I didn't write this down, but just since I'm up here and I have the mic, Greek philosophy, in my opinion, is a waste of time. It's interesting that it's taught as truth and such knowledge and wisdom when all it did was it was man's first systematic approach to thought, and they presented a lot of really good questions, zero answers. Isn't that interesting that that's something that we would teach and cling to instead of God's word? The next individual is the person who claims to be the Christian, yet still denies the Bible as God's written, infallible, perfect word. See, this person will claim to love God, but claims the Bible is so full of contradictions, therefore it cannot be God's word. Ooh, I got nervous. A blank page is in there. <laughs> this person has established their logic and their reasoning as the judge over God's word. And because of this, many wild doctrines are being born and being taught. And I'm sure you guys heard him. There's a bunch out there. When the person who says God is real, but this is not his word, you get stuff like there is no such thing as hell. Uh, annihilationism, where the soul does go to hell, but it's burnt instantly, and it doesn't, it's not in torment forever, that it's, it's wiped out of existence. There's universalism. Everyone's going to heaven. Don't worry about a single thing. This person is not a Christian. Jesus answered and said to him, if a man love me, he will keep my words. There is no way you can read God's word and using his standard to measure his standard and come to a conclusion like there's no hell. Come to a conclusion that everyone is going. Let's just entertain that one for a little bit. If everyone is going, why did Christ do what he did? I'm an easy guy to get along with, but if you water down what Christ did, you're going to have a problem with me. Don't disrespect my Lord and Savior like that. But they'll come to a, a conclusion like that. And if you ask them, man, well, why do you think everyone is going? And their answer, I find, is always because a loving God would not send someone to hell forever. Cool, then why did Christ do what he did? If in your mind there's no threat of this, why did Christ have to do what he did? That makes no sense. So quickly, they, they do away with the work of Christ, which means, and I preached on this a couple months ago, they're making faith void. There's no need for faith. Why do I have to have faith if, if everyone's going? Why repent? But we know it's by grace through faith that's involved. This individual claims Christ's existence and what he did, but they deny the Bible. My problem with that is if you deny the Bible, our source of spiritual truth, you can't make one spiritual truth claim. 1 Corinthians 2.14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto them. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. I, this is what I opened up with. We cannot know spiritual things unless it is revealed to us. And if this is not his word, how do you know a spiritual claim at all? And we'll take a simple one. God is love. How do you know that without scripture? Did God personally come down and tell you that? Why have you not told me about this? <laughs> That's a pretty cool story. How do you know murder is wrong? Not because the government says so. How do you know God disapproves of murder without scripture? Do you, do you see where I'm going with this? You can't make one spiritual claim if you deny his spiritual revelation. Can't do it. Man is in a fallen state, and so therefore even our reasoning is in a fallen state. People don't like to hear that. People like to think they can figure everything out on their own, but even our reasoning is fallen. And we think we can come to know spiritual truths without God's revelation? 
Are you kidding me? The next person is the Christian who loves God's word. He accepts it. He, he submits to it and meditates on it daily because it is a lamp to his feet and it dwells in the hearts of this individual and it renews his mind daily. If you hear that and you go, that's me, put me in that, that category and you think we're moving on, buckle up. The Christian does not get off easy. You see, it's not enough to just be a dumb sheep and hear his voice because he calls us to do so much more, James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Yes, sheep hear his voice, but we are called to do so much more. We get to be doers of his word. You see, I think when we just hear his word, and we put that like, check, I'm good, I'm one of his sheep because I hear his word. I think we tend to just stop there and say, that's it. I know I'm one of his sheep. I don't have to worry about anything else. But if that's the case, I would argue that we're just simply playing church, if that's the case. If there is no action, we must take action. And how do we even know what action to take? Scripture. Right? We just said this is our standard. So a sheep doesn't go, Huh, what good deed should I do? Well, I guess I'll make something up and, and hope it's right because it feels good. No, no, no. Scripture tells us what actions we should be taking. His word is our standard, so we must constantly be getting deep into his word. If we focus on anything else that puts God's word out of first place, we have a, a huge problem, and I think we messed up. See, I think the question that, that makes, makes me ask anyhow, why do we gather then? You should know that. If people ask you, what is the point of church? Why do we gather? See, some really quickly will say, well, we gather for a fellowship. So that's what you're determining what a good church is, fellowship. Well, let me ask you something. If you find a church and it has, let's say, the best fellowship ever, but the person up filling a pulpit is saying, yeah, everyone's going to heaven. Don't worry about it. Do you have a good church? That was too quiet. <laughs> Do you have a good church? Absolutely. What about worship? I hear that one all the time. Man, worship. Find, find a good church with, with good worship, and then you have a good church. Okay, so you find a church with, with the best worship ever. It just it moves you to this, this high that you can't get anywhere else. But then the man gets up in the, the pulpit and he says, uh, gosh, what else can we say? Yeah, there's more than two genders. How about that? Well, we have no answer on that. Do you have a good church? It's too quiet. So there's something there we're missing. You see, worship isn't just the first 15 minutes of service. It doesn't stop there. I would argue that the highest form of worship is God's people receiving the teaching and preaching of his word. Find me after if you disagree with that, but I would argue if you uh, seek fellowship, neat. How do you know what good fellowship is? Scripture. Maybe you seek worship. Nah, it's all about worship. I got to find good worship. How do you know what good worship is? Scripture. There's something that takes precedence over everything else. We must focus on his word. But see, I think we tend to focus on other stuff, stuff that we can measure and make ourselves feel good. There's a story in Acts chapter 6 that I just, I love. See, the early church is getting started and, and a group of people, a, a kind of a big number, start to notice, man, people are being neglected. There's widows that's not being fed. We have to do something. And that's a good concern. That's not a wrong thing. But in Acts 6, 2, then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Better check yourself. What are we concerned with? Good deeds are good. That's a good thing. We're supposed to do good stuff. Be the light of the world. But the apostles immediately addressed them and said, hey, we are not abandoning the teaching of the word just to, as they put it, serve tables. Not going to happen. 
You can read the rest of the story, though. They do address people to start that ministry to feed these people that are being neglected. That's, that's awesome. See, I think some churches would preach, yeah, just don't focus on good deeds at all. No, no, no we, you missed it. We need the preaching and teaching of God's word. And if there is something else that is convicting you and move you, start that ministry. Do something. Take action. But the Christian hungers for God's very word. The last individual I want to talk about today is the Christian who accepts God's word. That the scripture is God's fully written, perfect word, but they still, just from time to time, they struggle with certain parts. I wanted to address this today because I didn't want anyone walking out of here feeling concerned for struggling, right? Because the individual we just talked about prior was the Christian who just fully accepts it, submits to it, doesn't have a doubt. That's a good place to be in. But let's be real, there's going to be Christians who say, yeah, this, this is God's word. But then they read something and they go, how is that in there? I can't make sense of that. I, I struggle with that. I wanted to talk about that because, brother, I'm in there with you too. There's parts you, sh- you are going to struggle with. There's plenty of scripture we are not going to understand. But what do we do? Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. Again, we are not the authority of Scripture. If, if something does not appear to make sense to you, you don't lean on your understanding. You don't go, well, that doesn't make sense. Let's get rid of that. Or I don't like that. I can't talk about that. Or if something appears to be a contradiction, what do you do? You lean on God's understanding. Who do you think the contradiction would be on? God's perfect word or your fallible mind? You. Thanks, Grady. <laughs> Grady points to himself. Absolutely. If there, if there appears to be a contradiction, your next answer should be, well, I know it's not a contradiction because it's God's word, so it must be on my understanding. It's not on us to, to be able to fully explain the mind of God. Or, the big one I see is to defend miracles. The struggle, the big one I see, is when the world tries to discredit miracles, we as Christians try to prove them. Think about what I just said. Prove a miracle with science? What? Replicate it? Measure it? Then it's not a miracle. It's miraculous. It is not on us to prove miracles. And there's many in there that we could talk about, but let's just, let's just go right to it. What about the big miracle, right? Jesus Christ going to the cross to die and then rise again. How do you know that's true? You weren't there. How do you know it's true? I, I want an answer. Scripture. Amen. That is how we know. We have a certainty that that happened. It is God's word. We were not there to witness it, to measure it, but we know it happened because God says so. The problem I I see is we feel like we have to prove miracles to justify our belief in Scripture. I want to ask you something. If that's our big example, Christ dying and then rising and then physically ascending, I want to challenge you with this. And not a lot of Christians think about this one. But what if science tomorrow, you see on the news, they broadcast, we found the body of Christ. What do you do? Heath, I asked you the other day, what was the first thing that came out of your mouth? It's not the body of Christ. That pumps me up. I got a high schooler back here who's a a Christian deeper in his faith than most adults I know. If science, if TV turned on tomorrow and it said, we found the body of Christ, you say, no, you didn't. It's either not his body or they're lying. And how do we know that? Scripture. Gosh, I love the, the certainty in his word. Amen? In, it's in all of it. We know we can take it as God's word. And when it speaks on something, we know 
that we have absolute certainty. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. Just some of the parts that you like are given by inspiration of God. No, that that doesn't fit. The, The parts of Scripture that are convenient and easy to talk about, those are inspired by God. No, no, no. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All of Scripture. Underline that. Circle that. It's not just the parts you like or that are easy to talk about at social gatherings. And it's not just the New Testament. I hear it a lot out of people's mouths. I'm just a New Testament Christian. Look, the label Christian is such a privilege and an honor. That's enough of a label. You're just a Christian. Think about how they reasoned. Uh, Paul, I was reading the other day, when he reasons with the Jews, it says he reasoned for days using only Scripture. He didn't have the Bible then. What did he have? The Old Testament. You better be able to defend your faith and point to Christ by even just using the Old Testament, because it's in there. It is rich with Christ and his plan to come. Since it's God's word, we should be able to also preach it at any time. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. We are to do it with patience, long-suffering. But we, we should be able to do it right there on the spot to rebuke and correct. Because of God's written, revealed word, we have certainty on many, many things. And we should be able to preach on them whenever need be. Because of his word, we can recognize false teachings we can address sin. We know how to worship. We, we can learn how to serve. We can answer all of the man-made religions when they challenge Christianity. I'll give you the answer. It's, it's, there's, there's only two religions, God and not God. Christianity is the only religion that's not man-made. That was given by God. Every other religion, false and man-made. I'll be back there if you want to talk about that. And my favorite thing that Scripture teaches, 2 Timothy 3.15, this is Paul to Timothy, and that from a child thou hast known the holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. We are able to learn and understand salvation. Amen. And be able to preach it from his word. You know, I was thinking about an example of, of salvation. Uh, what's a good um, story that just kind of encompasses everything that's going on there? Man, I got to tell you, is it the perfect example? I don't know, but it is one of my favorites. It is Jesus raising Lazarus. That's a perfect picture of salvation because what you have is a man who is dead. And been dead for days. And that is what we are if we are not in Christ. We are dead. And Lazarus, he's not on his bed waiting for something to happen. He's buried already. He's in the tomb. Wrapped up. Rotting. That's where we are without Christ. And even if you decided, which I just argued, you can't. It's not your reasoning that saves you. But for fun, let's just say a dead body wanted to get up and get out of this grave. You can't because you're dead. And even if you could somehow, you have a gigantic rock standing in your way. You couldn't possibly move, even if you were alive. That's the situation we find ourselves in. And then Christ shows up, and he tells people, remove that stone. And then what does he do? Does he go in and he he gives Lazarus religion and he cleans him up? Spit shines him before he brings him out. He doesn't even go in. He just speaks. Words is all he used. Lazarus, come forth. And I'm sure you guys have heard the joke, why did Jesus say Lazarus' name? Because if he said come forth, everyone would have came forth. 
That's true. That's the power of his word. And again, that's why I say this is a perfect example of salvation. He personally spoke to Lazarus and said, come forth. There is a time, there's a day, there's a moment when God looked down on 8 billion people in the world and said, Grady, come forth. There's a moment in time when he looked down on 8 billion disgusting people and he said, Katie, come forth. And you didn't reason to it. You were dead and you came forth. Three things to note from that situation. The person's dead. Dead. You, you can't do anything. You're rotting. Second thing to note is Jesus had people remove the stone. What do we get to do? We get to go out there and preach the word, sprinkle sheep food around, praying that God speaks to them. Is that not a, does that not blow your mind that he gets to use us like that? Do you think Jesus couldn't have moved that stone? But he had people. He used people. What an honor. And the third thing to note is all he used was his voice. I, and I love just the, the, the picture of Lazarus coming forth. Because again, like salvation, he didn't clean us up and then say, come out. He said, come out right where you are, as you are. And I got to imagine, I don't know if his body was instantly healed or if he was still rotting and stank. But at the very least, the clothes that were on him stank. Because he was wrapped, on it, wrapped up in it for days. And so when he gets out, then what does Jesus say? Get that stuff off of him. Is that not amazing? Have you guys not had that happen when you received his calling and all of a sudden your eyes are open and just crap is removed from you and your heart? That's one of my favorite examples of salvation. I thought I would conclude with just a, a little comparison between God's word and our word. <laughs> I'm uh, confessing for the first time today. You see, I... I was talking to my best friend, Chris Douglas, a week ago, and he was, man, that guy can preach. He's preaching to me over the phone, and he's in Ephesians, and he's, he's talking about the, the tongue, what the tongue can do, and how, how bad it is, but that it can also lift people up. And so we just talked about that for 30 minutes or so, and, and we said, man, let's, let's, let's do it. For one week, Let's speak nothing but uplifting stuff. And so we challenge each other for a week. We promise not to tell anyone. So it's been a week. I feel like I can tell you. That's, that's what I'm confessing today. Um, you talk about a hard week. I quickly learned, my good, it was the second day we called each other. We're like, bro, how's work going? Not good. Right? Both of us learned really quickly, man, there's stuff I say that puts people down just through jokes. And we justify it. Oh, it's just a joke. What's the standard, though? Oh, do, say whatever you want as long as it's a joke. No, it has to be uplifting to the hearers. That doesn't mean just brothers and sisters. It's to the hearer, whoever's listening, it has to be uplifting. Second day in, and we're already going, man, pray for me. Pray for this week. It wasn't until Thursday was, was my breaking point. I snapped at an individual and then I pretty much cried on the way home. Isn't that interesting? Just a few days prior, I had no idea how bad my tongue was. And now here I am going, man, I thought I hated my flesh. I hate my tongue. The stuff that it can do. The verse he read to me was Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to use of edifying, lifting up, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. That was a hard week. To actively say, man, I'm, I'm not going to say anything bad, but try to be uplifting. Did I fail? Yeah, I still had bad stuff slip out. That's a problem. There was times, too, i got to be honest, where I found listening to people, because I would partake if it hadn't been for this challenge. But then I just found 
listening to people, most of my reaction all of week was this. I, I couldn't say anything, couldn't chime in. Very interesting. Basically, the thing I learned that if the Bible is only writings from men, we could throw this thing in the trash. Our word is not worth anything. If you read the next, uh, or excuse me, we're going to James 3.8, our tongues can be vile, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. No man tames his tongue. That's interesting, because I know people, when I personally talk to them, I'm like, man, they, I never hear, hear this person say anything bad about someone. I never hear them say a curse word slip. But God's word says, no man tames it. So that means somewhere that person still slips up. My point is, is we all could use this, and it's full of deadly poison. Now that's interesting. That might already appear as a contradiction. It said we can lift people up, but it's full of poison. It's not a contradiction. Your tongue is full of poison. That doesn't mean you have to go around spraying it everywhere. We can lift people up. Sure enough, like I said, Thursday was kind of my breaking point. I get home. Don't laugh at the situation, but I'm in the bathroom. And I'm scrolling on Facebook. And I see a post that just finished kicking me in the guts. It said, you can't treat people like garbage and worship God at the same time. Thanks, God. That was pretty good timing. I needed that. And you know who posted that? I think that's what affected me the most. It was one of my friends who's an atheist. If you read the very next verse in James 3, uh, 9, Dave, this might be the verse I didn't get to you. Um, There we go. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. What James is saying in those two verses, he just gets done saying, man, our tongue is, is vile, it's poisonous. And then he says, but with that tongue, we can bless God. But then we also turn around with that same tongue and we curse men. And he follows it up with men who are created in the image of God. Shame on us that we would try to bless God and fool him with our tongue and then turn around and curse something that's made in his image. I think the thing that bothered me the most about that post was that this atheist seemed to to get it more better than Christians do. I want to challenge you to do this for a week. Let nothing come out of your mouth unless it's uplifting to the hearer. It's tough. You're going to find out how much stuff is bad that comes out, little stupid jokes that you might try to justify, but instead just take the time to to lift someone up and say something good to them. You don't have to lie. That's not what we're commanded to do. But try to be uplifting. And I already already talked with, with Chris is, The next challenge, of course, is to do it for life. Oh, man. (laughs) That was a tough week, so be praying. But I I would encourage you to try that out for a week. Obviously, it doesn't stop at a week, but, but, man, really focus on that. You'll you'll find some interesting stuff. It put me in prayer um, more often this week. Because I just, I just, I found how, how short we fall of his standard. There is no way we can be perfect. There's another contradiction, people might argue, in Scripture. Because Matthew 5.48 says, this is Jesus speaking, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Well, we're in a pickle. Jesus is commanding us to be perfect, and we can't, absolutely cannot do it. Aren't you so glad that he sent a perfect sacrifice in your place? That was too quiet, you guys. Aren't you glad that when he looks down at you instead, he doesn't see you, he sees his son? Aren't you glad when he looks down at you, he doesn't see how dirty and filthy and rotten you are, but instead he sees his son's righteousness? Amen, you guys. Now, I don't want you walking out of here discouraged. That was, that's not the intention. Because by now, you're probably thinking, gosh, My words are disgusting, and it would probably be better if I just don't speak for the rest of my life. I felt like that by day two. 
But what I don't want you to do is to let that invade how you spread the gospel. Because I don't want you to go out here thinking, man, my words are terrible. How, how could I do that? How could I spread the gospel when all I, knew is I, all I know is I, I, I put people down? What do I say to people? You tell people this. You tell them about God. You tell them they desperately need to hear about him. And they desperately need to hear his word. You tell them about the power of his word and what he can do for them right now. God has the power to create everything that has ever existed or ever will exist. And all he simply did was he spoke. He used his word. That's how strong his word is. But do you know what he did for our salvation? He didn't speak it. He did much more than just speak for it. Jesus Christ died for it. The miracle of only one person's salvation is a greater miracle than the creation of the entire universe. You tell that person they can have that miracle in their life today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your perfect written word, Lord God. What an amazing, beautiful revelation you have given us. Lord God, the fact that we could even attempt to try to understand your mind or your plan for us, your plan for sin. Lord God, thank you so much for including us in your plan. As king, you, you absolutely don't have to waste a second on us specks of dust, and yet you still chose to speak to us, Lord God. Peter says that we have a more sure thing in Scripture, your written word, Lord God, because we can meditate on it. We can look on it daily. We can keep getting back to it. Lord God, I just pray that you work on all of our hearts, that this, this message took deep root in our hearts today, Father God. Lord, I ask that you, that you please speak to your sheep, we know they will hear your voice, Lord God, and we just, all of us today have friends or relatives that need to hear your voice, Lord God. We just pray that they are your sheep. And Lord God, thank you so much for, for letting us being servants in that and using us to spread your word. Lord God, what an honor and a privilege. I pray that we, we do that in a way that glorifies you, Lord God, however... Um, whatever the means are that you choose to use, we just, we thank you for that. But God, we pray that your word, again, just dwells in our heart, that we meditate on it. And these things I pray in Jesus' name, amen.